So good. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for being here. Thank you for being in us and with us. Lord, we want to continue as we spend the rest of this morning together to be in your presence. We want to hear from you. We want to be transformed by the word of God. We want to be challenged by you and encouraged by you and exhorted by you. Holy Spirit, we, we give you a place of authority and honor here. We ask that you continue to move amongst us. We ask that you give out gifts of healing and comfort and encouragement and words of wisdom and knowledge and faith and even do some working of miracles if you would today. Thank you for your gifts, Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. Mm. Can you feel his presence? That's sweet. Lord, you're so good. I, I'm um, not terribly young anymore, and I'm not, I guess I'm not old yet. Am I, I'm 54, am I old? Okay. My hair thinks otherwise, it's going away. <laughs> and it's turning white where it's left on my face. But I, I met, I, I was introduced to Jesus as a child. I had that really somewhat rare honor of being raised by godly parents. And now, 54 years into my journey, I can tell you that I would never do it any other way. I want to know him and serve him and follow him all my life. It is my conviction, my now experienced belief that you and I were made by God and we were made for God. And if we don't get that right, life will not make sense. If you think, if you're possibly here and you didn't know that God made you, he knows you, and you're for him, you're created to work into his plan and his life, really, more than him working into your life, you're designed to live from his life. And when we live from his life, there is the great potential and promise of a flourishing life. But if you live apart from his life, you won't flourish. You know how a tree, you know a tree, a big flourishing beautiful tree doesn't do well if it's not in ground where roots are getting nutrients and water from somewhere. You could take a beautiful tree and strap it to the side of a building and soon it wouldn't be a beautiful tree anymore. It needs its roots in the Lord. And if possibly you're here today and you don't live from God as your source, if you think that you are the captain of your destiny, and that you're the master of your fate, and you're in charge. How's that worked out for you? Seriously. You can, in a moment, shift your thinking, which is another way of saying, basically repent, change the way you're going, and choose to root yourself in God. Choose to pursue Him. Choose to learn about him, choose to be near him, choose to make your decisions based on what he decides, choose to follow your life according to his ways, and you will flourish. But if you choose to follow life according to the desires of your heart and follow after the pleasures that you think will give you life, you will be sadly disappointed. That's my experience now after a half a century on this planet. Choose to follow Jesus. Choose to follow Jesus. Jesus said to everyone, it seems like, come, follow me. 
and I will give you life. Take my yoke. Tie yourself, yoke yourself to me, and you'll find life. So choose life today. If you're not in the Lord, I mean, right now, right now, look to him in your heart, maybe with your lips speaking, say, Lord, I choose to follow you. Might not know what it means yet, but I choose to root my life in you. You're the one I want to follow. Amen. Well, we are studying together through a letter in the New Testament that's called by the name of the people the letter was written to, the book of Philippians. And so we're going to read there. I'm going to just start, though, with a contemporary story that I got this week. It was print, printed June 12th. What's today? 15th? 16th? So four days ago. Um, from, you ever heard of Open Doors? Now, Open Doors is an organization that works with people that are in the regions of the world where Christianity, or even any kind of religion in many cases, is despised, and people that follow Jesus are persecuted, tortured, killed, marginalized, don't have the ability to meet like we're meeting right now. There are many places on the, in the world like that. Um, for various reasons, governments try to shut down religion or Christianity in particular. Some religious governments that are not Christian religions, religious um, will, will come against Christians. So Open Doors exists to make the world aware of persecution where it exists and um, advocate for those that are hurting and, and bring help to them, bring resources to them. So they sometimes bring stories, and I, I was reading one, and it just it seemed to fit where we are in Philippians, and it's the context of the Philippian church. So I'm going to sort of read or talk through it. And this, the names will be wrong, just to protect the people's security. Several years ago, a guy named Ibrahim began struggling with the Muslim religion he'd been raised in, and he's in, in Algeria. Um, most Algerians are Muslim. And he had never met a non-Muslim until one day he heard about Jesus. And he said, I, I met this man who told me about Jesus. He had my full attention. Later, he took me to meet with Pastor Musli. And two years ago, I came to faith in Jesus. Pastor Musli works in South Algeria, where, uh, pretty far from where Ibrahim lived at the time. Lived at the time. To those around him, his faith remained a secret. It's dangerous to share what you just did if you follow Jesus in this country. He visited the mosque. He continued to say his, his prayers at the prayer hour, Islamic prayers. He just directed his prayers to Jesus when he would make his prayers. And he said, I, I didn't make my faith known to my wife or to my children. I was too afraid they'd take away my children. Pastor Musli explains that coming to faith in Jesus in Algeria can have very large negative consequences for converts. People can lose their wife and children, he says. Sometimes families force their couples to divorce when one of them becomes a Christian. The converts lose their children because the children automatically stay with the Muslim parent. When conversion from Islam to Christianity becomes public, they're in for big pressure. They often must literally flee their homes, and that's what happened. After being a believer for some time, uh, Ibrahim felt like he should confess his conversion to his family. So he contacted Pastor Musli and told him that he wanted to speak up. And, and he told him he'd, pro he'd pay, pray for him. The pastor said he'd pray for him. So 
Ibrahim went to his father. Here's what he says. My father just stared at me and kept silent for about 15 minutes. He said nothing, did not respond at all. Then he rose from his chair and gathered all my brothers and sisters. He wasn't prepared for what happened next. His brothers came at him, fists swinging and shouting, You will renounce your faith! His parents threatened to take away his wife and his children. He has two children. The violent scene unfolded in front of his young children and desperate shrieks his children, who didn't really understand what was going on, are begging their father to deny Jesus. Can you, can you just imagine? This is happening right now in parts of the world. It was hard to hear them say it. I was about to lose my family, everything, Abraham says, remembering the attack. But I couldn't renounce Jesus. I can't renounce my faith. I said to my children, I love you, I love you, but I love Jesus. Jesus, I love him more than denying him for you at this time. And They threw him out of the house onto the streets. And eventually he found refuge going south in that pastor's house, many miles from his home. And uh, last year we had seven people from our region who needed a safe place to stay, to stay the pastor says. We listened to him, we prayed with him. I'm very determined about this. This is the pastor speaking. Believers shouldn't make compromises. Yes, it's dangerous to become a Christian in our country, but we should trust the Lord when we speak out as Christians. This means that new believers often have to flee. So Ibrahim spent the next three months with those people in the pastor's home and was discipled and learned about the Bible and got to celebrate communion like we're going to at the end of our time this morning. Um, in this case, there was a miracle. Very unusual in this. The pastor says this rarely happens, but one day the father called and said, take your, t- your wife and your children back. And so he was reunited. He's got a place to rent, and his children are 12 years old now. They're happy to be with their father. They're, they're still not Christians. They're still Muslim, but they're living together. And the most important part, he says, is that we're together as a family. The pastor mostly estimates that about 1,500 believers in Algeria, live in complete isolation the way Ibrahim once lived. Complete isolation. So that's reality in some places. And just to remind you, we're reading a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to a church that he established in a Roman colony, the major Roman colony of the region called Philippi. Roman colony means, you know, we're in the expansion of the Roman Empire in the first century. And it's a big deal to be a citizen of Rome. And in a Roman colony, it's like a mini-Rome away from Rome. So they had buildings in the the government style of Rome, and they had citizenship. Uh, They had some wealth. It was populated in a major part by military soldiers who'd been given property by the emperor. He had done a smart move. Some of them had opposed him in a previous war. And after they were defeated, he gave them property and made them very, um, a lot of allegiance to, to the emperor. So that's the region that this church is planted in, where Paul goes and tells people about Jesus, and they start following. And you'll remember from the first time we talked, when we read in Acts 16, how it went down, how, how as people begin to believe in Christ, something happened, and Paul, was, Paul and his friend Silas, part of the team that was there, were severely beaten by the officials. They were flogged, that's whipped till you know you're bleeding and it's bad, and then thrown in jail. Do you remember that story? And while they were in jail that night, they were worshiping God. They were rejoicing in the Lord. 
Much of this letter is about rejoicing in difficult circumstances, and that's part of the reason we're calling this series Courageous Joy, because they're having courage and they're having lots of joy. So in an interesting twist of events, God did a miracle, the chains fell off the prisoners, the doors opened, the jailer was about to kill himself, thinking you know, his life for the, for the prisoners. They yelled him, don't kill yourself, we're all still here, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. So he's in the church that Paul's writing this letter to. He and there's a woman there who was a very wealthy merchant in um, the kind of fabrics dyed um, a, a bright purple or maroonish color that would be used by officials in the government and kind of royalty. You know, you can picture it's kind of like the color of the curtain here. Uh, she was the first one to open up her home, and, and part of the church was meeting in her home. We don't really know how it worked. They weren't meeting in a building like this, though. They were probably meeting in, in more than one home around the city, and they would get together and worship. But they were in danger, not probably quite as bad, but like, like what we read in Algeria there. And so Paul is now himself in Rome in prison. And the church at Philippi has sent one of their own members, a guy named Epaphroditus, with a gift to help take care of Paul while he's in prison. So Epaphroditus is there in prison along with Timothy and Paul and Epaphroditus, Timothy, some others. And, and Paul, in spite of his conditions, as we talked about earlier, is full of joy because he said, because of my chains, everyone in, in the Roman palace guard knows about Christ. They know I'm here for, for Christ. I'm in chains for Christ. And that makes me happy. Because the most important thing to me is the gospel of Jesus and Jesus Christ and him being known. He firmly rooted his life in Christ. So now he's writing this letter to the Philippians and he's concerned because they're having apparently some turmoil, some posturing among them, maybe some selfish ambitions, some arguments. You'll see when we get later on that there's a couple of women that are leaders that he calls his fellow workmen. They've worked side by side like soldiers in the Lord, but they're in some kind of a dispute. And he's concerned because they're facing opposition in their city. He tells them, as we'll see in some probably reading today, that they're facing the same opposition that he faced and that he now faces. Some kind of persecution. So he's writing to tell them how they should live to encourage them, to thank them for their gift. Um, to thank them for being what he calls participants with him, partners with him in the gospel. Is this ringing a bell from what we talked about in the last couple of weeks? So we're going to read a particular um, section starting in um, the first, first chapter, this 27th verse, going into a little bit of the second chapter. Keep in mind, by the way, if you're relatively new to the Bible, all those numbers were not in the letter that he wrote. That was added hundreds of years later to help people like you and me you know, get in the same sentence so we can talk together and learn. Um, I'm going to be talking from this passage about the overall topic of the power of love and unity in the family of God for courageous joy, especially in the face of opposition. So here's at the beginning, I just want to mention one sentence he says. At the beginning of his letter, he writes this, after saying, I pray for you guys all the time, and when I pray, I'm filled with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And folks, this could be written to us today. This could be written to the church of Jesus Christ in Oceanside today. I pray that your love would abound, your love for each other 
your love for the Lord and your love for each other and even your love overflowing to your community of people that don't yet know Jesus, that your love would abound more and more in depth of insight. So I'm going to read chapter 1, starting at verse 27. Oh, I didn't tell you. If you didn't notice, you have this handout. And this is um, outlines and scriptures of things that I'm saying right now. There's a lot of ink on that page, but it, it might be useful to follow along or it might be useful for you to take with you and if you want to study this some more. I know one of the small groups is taking what we talk about on Sundays and kind of going over it, so it might be helpful. But at the top of that, in a green bar, I wrote this. This is my summary of what we're about to read. This is my best attempt to say this is, I think, what Paul is saying. Courageous joy is birthed out of a community of worshipers like us, or like your small group, a community of people that are gathered together to worship. Courageous joy is birthed out of a community of worshipers who are committed to each other in humble, self-sacrificing love, and who are united together in their common mission. So two parts. If you, bet, if you were with us many years ago when this church was just launching, our founding pastor, great guy by the name of Jack Little, was seeking the Lord, and he heard the Lord say, I want a family with a purpose. That's another way to say what I just said. You're together, you're committed to each other in love, in um, self-sacrificing, humble love but you're also committed to a purpose. You're a family with a purpose. So having said that now, let's read this and see if you agree. And I've, I've, I've underlined some of the words in this passage just to kind of highlight this, this message that I think I'm getting out of it. Whatever happens, oh, I have to stop, I'm sorry. Right before this sentence, Paul has written to them, I'm in prison and I don't know if I'm going to be executed or if I'm going to be released. Either way, it's going to be okay, and I'm rejoicing. I might be killed. I might be released and come and see you again, but I'm going to be fine, and you're going to be fine because the Lord's with us, and his kingdom is advancing. So when he says, whatever happens, he means if I get killed or if I get released and come and see you. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a pretty good message already, isn't it? Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man. Picture contending like a, a spiritual battle, or a, a, you know, people are together, maybe back to back, swords drawn, contending together against the enemy, as one man for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened, here comes the courageous part, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And I think of the situation we're reading about in Algeria at the beginning. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them, those who oppose you, your persecutors, that they are going to be destroyed, but you're going to be saved. And that by God. Those who continually choose to live away from God will one day get their desire permanently granted. And that's what this says. You, you don't miss heaven by a hair's, hair's breadth or not getting a high enough score on your theological SAT. God doesn't make it hard. God's in pursuit of you, and you have to reject him. 
and walk away and say, no, I want to be God. I don't want you to be God. I don't like your rules for living. I like my rules for living. I don't want to live with you. And one day, you will be destroyed if you choose to live that way. One day, Jesus will return to this earth as King and Lord in victory against all the powers of evil. And people who have said, I do not at all want to live in a world where God is everywhere, all the time, unavoidably present. I don't want to live in that world. And he says, all right. I know Dallas Willard, I think it was, it said, hell is just the best God can do for people that want to reject him. Well, that's a side. <laughs> that's what I got out of that sentence. <laughs> for it has been granted to you, listen to this phrase, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle, you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. You saw that I had it when I was with you, and I was thrown in jail, and now you hear that I'm still in prison. If you, remember, there's no chapter separation, so he just keeps right on rolling in his letter. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, remember, he just said, you've been granted by Christ to not only believe in him, but to suffer with him. You're united with Christ. You have the joy and honor of suffering for his name. Jesus had said before he left the earth, before he was crucified, before he rised again and ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, if you suffer for my name and you will, rejoice. Rejoice that you get to bear my name in this way. Great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward. If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, Fellowship with each other under the Spirit and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Is that not a great passage of Scripture? I mean, we probably could just stop right there, right? And say, thank you, Paul, for preaching today's message. But I'm going to try to unpack it a little more as we go. So humble, self-sacrificing love is the language I used to describe the short version of what he just said. And I want to start with a thought about how we can get to that place. Do you, do you feel you've got humble, self-sacrificing love, Roland? Maybe a little bit, though. Huh? Sometimes? You do, don't you? If you're in Christ, I bet you you have this going in your life. It's the natural outflow of having Jesus in you. I bet sometimes you're humble. I bet you're not always humble. I bet sometimes you self-sacrifice. You say no to yourself and yes to blessing others. I bet you do. And good for you. Good for listening to the Lord. Good for having the Spirit of Christ flowing out of you. Well, Paul says this is the way it ought to be at all times. But my estimation from something that Jesus did, at least one part of how to walk into this, is that when we as individuals in a community really know our identity in Christ, we have nothing to prove. And we don't get in competition. And we don't get in ambition. And um, we don't get in vain conceit and, and posturing ourselves to have a higher position, but we're able to humble ourselves. And this I see in the example of Jesus on the night he was crucified. So let's read this. 
This is the night that Jesus is about to be crucified. And in John chapter 13, verse 3, listen to these phrases about how Jesus knew who he was, where he'd come from, and where he was going. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And he had come from God. And he was returning to God. That's identity. So, out of his identity, so, he got up for the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet like a household servant, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. A few verses later, when he had finished... He put on his clothes and returned to his place, and he said, do you understand what I've done for you? Do you understand, my disciples? This is the 12 disciples. Judas was there. He washed Judas's feet. Ever think about that? Knowing what Judas would do. He knew who he was. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he was going. He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's right. That's who I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Self-sacrificing, humble love. Can you imagine a community of people where we wouldn't even blink an eye at doing something so menial as washing, you know, if we all wore sandals out on dusty roads without a ton of pavement, and it was just normal when you come into a house that someone provides a wash basin and a servant to wash your feet. But no, the master of the house comes and says, let me wash your feet for you. He gets down on his knees. That's the attitude. We probably don't actually do that too often. Sometimes we do it as a ceremonial, you know, um, kind of ritual to say we want to serve each other. He knew where he was. He knew where he was going. And out of that identity, he washed his disciples' feet. So this is important. You hear a lot about identity in Christ. In our world, you hear a lot about the need for you to get self-esteem. And if you only got self-esteem, then your problems would be solved. Your problem, they say, is that you don't think enough about yourself. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> you need more self-esteem, and then you'll be okay. But some people talk about Christ-esteem. Have Christ-esteem more than self-esteem. When we have that, when we know who we are, we know what we came from. And we know how we came from something that wasn't so great into a life that's really becoming great and flourishing. And we know where our destiny is with Jesus the Christ who will one day return and sit on his glorious throne at the renewal of all things and this earth and heavens will be made new and all will be made right. And we know that's our future. We have nothing to prove because we already have been taken care of and we have identity in Christ. Are you hearing me? So here's... Four things that I put down about my identity, and you know these all, but just by way of reminder, I'm a child of God. Jesus made us children of God. John, in his gospel, wrote at the beginning, to all who received and believed in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Children but not born, parents' will, but by the will of God. Children of God. You hear commonly, well, everyone's a child of God. Well, kind of in a metaphorical sense. We're all made by God. But not everyone's a child of God. Everyone doesn't want to be a child of God. 
But you who put your trust in Jesus have been given the blessing and the right to become a child of God. And Paul would write write later in uh, Romans 8 that the Spirit himself bears witness with the Holy Spirit bears witness with us in the insides of our heart that we are the children of God. We've been adopted. We're sons. We're not slaves. We have no more fear as we often sing. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God, we sing. When I know that, it changes everything. But here's another one that, that affects um, how we live thinking as representatives of something. I told you that Philippi is a Roman colony where there are Roman citizens and there's pride. What, what, is it, what, what does it mean to be a good citizen? Talk to me. Don't break the law, okay. To serve, is a good citizen serves others? Yeah. What's good citizenship? Do we teach this anymore in schools? I think we do. In kindergarten? I asked my son, and he, said, and he like rattled off and I can't say it quite as well as he did, but he said something like, well, that's someone who um, knows their rights as a citizen, but also knows their duties as a citizen. And they're aware of what's going on in their society, and they contribute, and when there's a town hall meeting, they want to go and be participating and knowing what's going on in their community, and they, they give something. He said, oh, I was like, whoa, <laughs> pretty good job, right? So we are citizens of another kingdom. And I don't know if you think about that often, but your, your primary citizenship is not if you're Canadian, like some of us, Canadian citizenship, or a Swedish citizen, or a U.S. citizen. It, I, patriotism, I think, is fine, and be thankful for the country you're from, and stand up for it, you know, wave your flag from time to time on Independence Day. But your citizenship is ultimately from heaven. And Paul writes that later in this letter, but here's something you and I didn't hear when we read, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Greek, that phrase, conduct yourself in a manner, translates one word that I'll, maybe I'll try to say, politumai. You hear the word politic in there. And it means to exercise the rights and duties of a citizen. It actually says that. Paul is using a metaphor. When he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, he's specifically using a metaphor that they would have caught in their ears because they were Roman citizens in a place where not many people were. Conduct yourselves as citizens of heaven, worthy of your heavenly homeland where you are. Does that change your thinking a little bit? In my behavior, as I'm loving you and reaching out to the world, I'm also remembering, wait a minute, I'm representing heaven. So conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel includes all of that. Here's another one. In Christ, you and I are filled to the full with God. In another place, uh, the Bible teaches that we are, Christ in us is the hope of glory. The hope that Israel had that one day the glory of God would return to their temple is fulfilled in you and I who together are a living temple. Christ in us is the hope of glory. I was walking down an aisle in Walmart the other day <laughs> and suddenly it occurred to me because I was feeling, do you ever feel just shy and inadequate? I had this whole wave of you're just a nothing person come against me. And I remembered, oh, Christ lives in me. I'm a citizen of heaven. Everything the people around me needs actually in me. I have something to give. I have power 
to bless. I could walk up to someone right now and if they'd receive it, I could put my hand on them and because of the spirit of the living God in me, they would receive a blessing from heaven. That's who I am. I'm a child of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm filled with the fullness of God. I have the hope of glory resident in me because Christ is in me. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And my future is secure in heaven. Listen now, Peter writes that. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven um, for you who through faith are shielded by God's power. Does that give you some hope? If I know all of that, I'm more likely to sacrifice for you. And you're more likely to sacrifice for me and us for each other. And when we live that way and united in purpose, those who oppose us in the gospel, especially if we get in a place where there's some persecution, which we don't have in our country at this day, but we could. It could come. Jesus promised that if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. You might be persecuted in the workplace. When we live like this, united in love, we will have courage both to love each other, humbly serve each other, no need to stand up for my rights, but to lay down my life. Because my Savior not only died on the cross to save me, he died on the cross to show me the way of living for him. The cross-shaped life is the way of Christianity. I don't know if you knew that. You can have your best life now and it's on a cross. (laughs) you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me, he said. And that's where life comes from. That's where the life inside, where Paul could say, I've learned the secret of being content in every circumstance, whether I have a lot or I have nothing. I have everything I need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because he was on that cross and my sins were forgiven. They were put on him. His righteousness put on me. My sin put on him. He rose from the dead. I live in him victorious. And I live a sacrificial life like Jesus showed me. So we'll go back to that. How are you doing? Okay. We'll go back to where we're reading and read that description of, of what it looks like to live this out. Make my joy complete. There's that word joy again. You'll see all over this this letter. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. That doesn't mean, by the way, oh, I'm a worm and you're like really good. It means that in the way that I serve you, I consider your needs above mine. And more. Each of you should look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. So, when we fight our spiritual battles as a family, it gives us courage. Do you notice that? I, last week or two, I visited a number of our home groups. I went over to the one that Snake and Michelle lead over at um, Dilly's house. Hi, Dilly. And, oh my gosh. So, there were people in that room that were fighting spiritual battles. Some heavy ones. And I watched as they blessed each other and they prayed for each other and they loved each other and I was just humbled. I was just, 
wasn't I just in awe? I was like, it was super quiet. I was super quiet. I was like, oh, and they were like, what are you thinking, Ron? I'm like, I'm just humbled by watching you guys love each other and pray for each other and embrace each other. And one there who was facing a really difficult circumstance was just built up by those around. And he had courage to fight the fight. If you're living this Christian life solo, what the heck are you doing? You've got a family. Don't do it alone. You'll lose courage. Have you ever been in a situation that takes courage and you're by yourself and you just can't do it, but you get someone else who's in the same situation and suddenly you guys are courageous, the two of you together. You know, um, two together are great. A three-stranded cord is not easily broken, says in Ecclesiastes. When we're together, we have something to give us strength from each other to fight the spiritual battles. When, when you hear the word encourage, what do you hear? I hear encourage. I hear, if I want to encourage you, Mark, when I come to you and encourage you, it's almost like I take a big vat of courage and pour it into you. I'm encouraging you. You'll take some? <laughs> Stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who pose you. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed. I talked that, about that briefly already. So I, I refer to um, a, a New Testament scholar by the name of Gordon Fee. I love his writings. And um, he's a lot smarter than me by about a thousand miles. And he said, you know, this stand firm in one spirit can hardly mean uh, one spirit as though like, you have the same mind about something. For them to live out their heavenly citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel means for them to contend for the faith of the gospel and to do so in the unity that only the Spirit can bring. To stand firm in one Spirit means we serve a God who's triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will bring unity to us. As we seek Him together, He makes us one. He gives us mission. He leads us. He empowers us. He gives us fruit of His Spirit, of Himself, so that we can love each other, have joy, and have peace, and goodness, and kindness, and gentleness, and patience, and self-control in our life together, the fruit of the Spirit. Stand firm in one Spirit. Contending as one man for the gospel. Now, see how that, that sentence goes together? I think Paul is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches me that. And he, he just ties this all together as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. I think out of fighting as one man for the faith of the gospel, contending, comes courage. Destroys fear. And just by note, you should never be surprised at the opposition you face. Jesus promised it. The apostles promised it. If we're going to live for Christ, I don't know if you, know if you have a theology for suffering in your life, but there is suffering for Christ. If you have the opinion that to live in Christ means that all suffering goes away, all difficulty goes away, if you'll just confess a positive thing strongly enough, I'm sorry, but that's not what the Bible teaches we will have suffering in some form or another. But fear not, I am with you. You can face anything. Have a perspective of the kingdom and you can have joy in the face of suffering. Peter wrote this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so you may be overjoyed 
when he is revealed, and I think I said this already, through death on the cross, he not only saved us, but modeled God's ways of dealing with the opposition. Okay. Enough of that. How about if we just say, how could we summarize some thoughts for us? Some ways, you want to apply any of this to your life? You do, okay. Here's some thoughts. I want to, in my life, prioritize. Prioritize. Make priority. By the way, when you prioritize something, that means other things don't get prioritized over the priority. Right? You make something the first place, then other things, the decision's already made on the other things. Oh, I'd love to do that, but I'd already have committed my time. You prioritize. I would say prioritize spending time together with the community of faith. Just prioritize the time. Just start there. If you don't have in your life a priority of getting together in a small community, large community like this, but somewhere in your month, if not in your every week, a place of getting together with a group of people who are worshiping Jesus, who will pray together, who will open the Bible together to learn how to live, who will fight battles together, who will listen to the Holy Spirit for the mission that he's called them to that neighborhood. If you're not doing that, I would encourage you to live this kind of courageous joy, this flourishing life. Commit, prioritize being together regularly. And in your time together, make the mission and ministry of Jesus a central goal. Make that a priority. You're together with a group of people. Figure out by reading the Bible, by listening to each other, by listening to the Holy Spirit, in your prayer, in your worship, what Jesus not only wants to do for you, amongst you, but through you, outside of you. Remember this language we use. We believe in a real God who makes himself very experientially real in our lives. We believe that we grow best when we are real together as real people. And having encountered a real God as real people, then we go about restoring lives around us with the power of the Spirit of God and the power of the Word of God. We have a mission taking the gospel to the world around us in our own neighborhoods, in some cases around the world for others of you. Some are called, I know we have some missionaries in the room today I'm seeing, you're called to take the gospel to faraway places. In any case, be around the mission of Jesus Pursue the Holy Spirit together for the unity that only He can provide. If you see a lack of unity, then pursue Him. I'll just close with this verse and, and we'll celebrate communion together and do some ministry time. Let us consider how we may spur one another on, on toward love and good deeds. How would we do that? Well, let us not give up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing, which is so true of America right now. But let us encourage one another, 